from APM. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. The fastest growing segment of the nation's future workforce is students of color, and those are the students least likely to earn a high school diploma. That's according to a study from the U.S. Census Bureau. One state is really struggling with this so-called graduation gap between minority and white students, a state you might not expect, Minnesota. Minnesota has a reputation for having good schools and strong standardized test scores, and that is true for white children. White fourth graders ranked first on the 2015 National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, test. But if you are Hispanic, Black, Asian American, or Native American, your chances of completing high school in Minnesota are worse than most any other state. That's according to the National Center for Education Statistics. A new documentary from Minnesota Public Radio News sheds light on these statistics and looks at how schools and legislators are working to close the graduation gap. Here are reporters Laura Ewan and Brant Williams. Last year, we dug into a problem that seemed intractable. Why are so many students of color in Minnesota not graduating on time? Now, you've probably heard stories about our state's educational achievement gap between white students and students of color. You can see the gap play out in ACT scores, third grade reading scores, eighth grade math. And usually the gaps look like this. White kids doing really, really well and students of color in the middle. So you get this big gulf between those two groups. And sometimes those gaps are pretty ugly. But our graduation rates really stand out because of how bad they are. It's so bad, it's become a party trick for one of the national experts on high school dropouts. He's Robert Balfans, and he's at Johns Hopkins University. My party trick is always to ask people to predict which city has one of the lowest grad rates. And I always know they'll never win because it's Minneapolis. And people just don't expect that. I mean, it just doesn't come to people's mind as like the most impacted, the most struggling urban city in America, where you would think like they would naturally have the lowest grad rate. Minneapolis did bump its graduation rate up to 64 percent last year after several years with rates in the 50s. Balfan says around the country, most other major city school districts have worked hard to lift up their grad rates to at least the upper 60s. But Minneapolis wasn't riding that wave of improvement. And so out of all the measures we could have studied to understand the educational divide across race, not just in Minneapolis, but statewide, we settled on graduation. And that's because unlike test scores, there are real world consequences if you don't earn a diploma. And something happened about four years ago that shined an even more glaring light on our graduation troubles. Now, this is going to get wonky, so bear with us. Starting with the 2010-2011 school year, the nation went to a new way of calculating grad rates. Before, states used their own methods to determine what percentage of their kids finished high school within four years. And the methods varied from state to state, so you couldn't reliably compare data from, say, Massachusetts and Georgia. But now, all 50 states are using the same method. It's not perfect, but it's the best comparison we have. And suddenly, Minnesota students of color sank to the bottom of the national scales. This was kind of an oh-wow moment. Take the grad rates for Minnesota's black students. Only 62% of them will finish high school on time. In 2014, the last year we could compare all 50 states, they had the third worst ranking in the nation. Black children in Mississippi and Alabama have a way higher chance of graduating than they do here. And for Hispanic kids in Minnesota... Their rate was the very worst in the country. So the gap we're talking about with graduation rates is not so much between white students and students of color in Minnesota, although that is pretty bad. 
the more notorious gap is between students of color in Minnesota and their peers of color in virtually every other state. And that's why Minnesota's grad rates are especially ugly. Not to mention, it's just not how we think of ourselves. We're used to hearing about how smart our kids are. Minnesota students' math and reading test scores are some of the highest in the country, and they do really well on college entrance exams. Heck, we've projected this image to the entire nation. That's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. But honestly, when it comes to graduation, our children aren't even above average. We're just average. Overall, about 82% of our kids finish high school on time. We asked education officials why our graduation rates might be so low. And they pointed out that Minnesota's graduation requirements are tougher than in lots of other states. When you finish high school in Minnesota these days, you're expected to be ready for college or a career. And we only offer one kind of diploma. In other places, students can opt for different pathways to a diploma with much easier requirements. Most experts agree that schools should be challenging, but they should also offer help to students who are struggling. So high rigor, but also high support. We went into schools to chat with teachers and students, and we talked to a lot of experts. Maybe there's no better expert on what causes a student to fail than a kid who actually dropped out. My name is Xavier Simmons, X-A-V-I-E-R. S-I-M-M-O-N-S. Xavier isn't a kid anymore. He's a 27-year-old black man who stands a little more than six feet tall and has the build of a junior college linebacker. Xavier dropped out after his sophomore year. I used to go to school, put my head down on the desk, go to sleep. Teacher never woke me up, never said, hey, pick your head up. You know, they really just let me do what I want. I was the type of kid that'll go in the classroom and turn my desk around. Anything I can do to get them to kick me out so I can try to find some type of way to get out. Now, you might say that Xavier got what he deserved for not trying in school. He has no diploma. He says he dropped out so he could start working and help his mom pay the bills. So the school system gave Xavier the freedom to flounder, fail, and leave. Xavier's experience was similar to that of nearly all the people I spoke to who didn't finish high school in four years. He failed four classes in his freshman year, and nobody called him on it. Not his mom, not his teachers or counselors. Okay, pop quiz. What are the biggest warning signs that a student will drop out of school? Before you answer, we know what you're going to say. We thought the same thing, too. Yeah, because when we asked people to explain Minnesota's graduation gap, we kept hearing the same theories poverty, and language. In other words, to be black or Asian in Minnesota generally means to be poorer than in other places. We also have a lot of immigrant students who are learning English. Naturally, both poverty and language could pose barriers for kids in school. But here's the deal. We do have higher levels of poverty among our communities of color, and yet they're not the highest poverty rates in the country. And yeah, we have higher rates of students with limited English skills, but again, they're not the highest nationally. And when you look at the grad rates, you can control for things like poverty and language. Take out all the kids of color who are eligible for free or reduced price lunch. And take out the kids who have language barriers. You're left with students of color who don't have those barriers that we often hear about, and they trail their white peers, too. So let's get back to that pop quiz. The most accurate signs that a kid is going to drop out of school have nothing to do with race, family income, language ability, or even test scores. The biggest warning signs are what the experts call the ABCs. 
That's attendance, behavioral issues, and course failure. And the research says if you can identify these three signs early enough in a student's high school experience or even in the younger grades, you might be able to swoop in and get that student back on track. The alternative is kids get well into their high school years by the time they realize they're not on track to graduate. And that's what happened to a young woman I met. Her name's Shaniqua Barker. Shaniqua, who is African-American, had a hard time at St. Paul Central High School. The teachers had a style of teaching that she found hard to follow. Some teachers tried to help her, but in a school with big classes, Shaniqua said they just couldn't give her the attention she needed. And finally, she saw a counselor. I think it was it might have been my 11th grade year when I met with her for the first time. And then that's how I found out how far behind I was, which I knew I was, I was far behind, but I didn't think I was that far behind. This is a textbook case of something you see, not just in Minnesota, but in a lot of American high schools. Kids who don't have enough credits to graduate flying under the radar. The system isn't organized to flag them, at least not early enough. And on top of that, a lot of educational experts say Minnesota's school system hasn't kept pace with our state's demographic changes. It was designed around children who already did well in school and at a time when we were more homogenous. Now, people of color are the fastest growing segment, and they're the ones struggling the most to graduate. And so we spent the past several months going into schools that are tackling the graduation problem. We wanted to zero in on diverse schools where the majority of students were low income. And what we found matched up with what the experts are telling us. Identifying those ABCs early on, attendance, behavioral issues, and course failures can make a big difference. Here at Kennedy High School in Bloomington, about 60% of the students are racial minorities. Good morning. Class, everybody. This is what it's like in the mornings after a warning bell rings. You just heard the principal, Andy Beaton, shooing kids to class. And they know the drill by now. You often see them sprinting down the hallways to get to their seats on time. Morning. Once the final bell rings, you'll find more than a dozen students who are trapped at the front entrance. They're late. They want to come in, but they can't pass through the doors because there are three adults with walkie-talkies who are physically blocking the entrance. What, like bouncers or something? (laughs) Well, kind of. They're actually the principal, the assistant principal, and the dean. And they confront every straggling kid, and they make them get out their cell phones. All right, get some in the phone for us, you guys. And they ask the kids to call mom or dad so an administrator can let them know they're tardy. So, yes, your daughter was late this morning, so we'll get her to class. But if you want a reminder to be on time, that would be awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Oh, busted. Yep. And before this policy was put into effect six years ago, a lot of the teachers and other staff were skeptical it would work. I talked to Leslie Weiss. She's a social worker at Kennedy. And back in 2010, when the new tardy policy was put in place, She recalls standing next to one of her teacher colleagues and seeing the effects almost immediately. The bell rang. Um, This was the second day of school again, like I said, and the hallways were empty. And we both looked at each other like, holy cow. I'd never experienced that. And it's just an amazing thing. Kids are here for school. And that first year of the call mom approach, the number of tardy reports decreased by 20,000. The guy behind the policy change is Kennedy's principal, Andy Beaton. He was new at the time. He says he cracked down on tardiness because he wanted to raise expectations for the students. And it also signaled a partnership with parents. Like, we're going to get these kids to school together. Right away, he says, people notice the difference. You'd have visitors that come to Kennedy. And again, reputation is 
diverse school, a lot of poverty. Like, what do they think's happening in the school? Like, crazy town, kids everywhere, nobody learning, kids fighting everywhere. And so when your visitors come, they say, wow, your halls are so quiet. Like, well, kids are in class. Kennedy's approach has shown results. The graduation rate was 92% in 2014, with the largest gains coming from Hispanic students. But last year, the overall rate dropped to 80%, the result, it seems, of allowing some kids who were eligible to graduate to defer their diploma for a year while they attended community college. Beaton says these kids didn't graduate on time, but at least they'll still get their diplomas, plus have a better shot of finishing college. Beaton is white, like the vast majority of his staff. And the very first person he hired when he came on as principal was Raheem Simmons, who is black. Simmons is not a teacher. He's not a guidance counselor. His official title is student advocate, along with two others who are Latina and Somali. Their job is to help all kids, but especially students of color, navigate high school. Hey, man. Something's wrong with your pants. Something's wrong with your pants. Thank you. And so you'll see him in the hallways and lunchroom, chatting with the students, and yeah, telling them to pull up their pants. Simmons also runs a special advisory class for African-American boys. Maybe they're struggling in school or they're having trouble at home. Every year he handpicks this group of kids who, with the proper guidance and support, he hopes will change their behavior. He says over six years, his little experiment has worked. All the kids graduated on time. All the kids' GPA went up, the grades went up, the attendance went up, the behavior referrals went down. But earlier in the school year, the boys in his advisory class were definitely not on track. The first time I visited his class, the first trimester was coming to a close. Simmons was holding a stack of papers. The grades were in. In this group, we have 20 Fs and a countless number of Ds. Don't look around, because it's ridiculous. If this is what you're going to be about, go somewhere else. He asks every failing student to explain why they're not cutting it. One by one, they mumble their excuses. Mr. Simmons is not impressed. So don't give me the crap that you want to go to college, you want to be a professional, you want to do all this stuff, and you can't even do this stuff, man. After class, I asked him how he thinks it went. If you notice, no one took offense when I was calling them out, talking about their grades, whatever, because when they're doing the right thing, I'm their biggest cheerleader. When they aren't doing the, you know, the right thing, I'm also their biggest critic. Like, hey, you can do it. And because they know it's fair. So whatever we have to do to get them to the point where they can graduate is what I want them to do. But I will not settle for excuses. I just can't do it. So he demands a lot from his kids. And sometimes that's what the students say they need. I met this one girl. Her name is Mariana Camacho Castillo. She's a senior now with dark, oversized glasses. Mariana transferred to Kennedy her freshman year after failing most of her classes at a nearby high school. She says it felt like nobody at her old school had noticed. During my experience, like, they didn't really care. Like, I would skip class or I would not go into class at all. Like, Kennedy takes their students and their attendance and their grades very serious, which it's so much better because, like, they actually push you to graduate, like they want to see you graduate. Mariana's parents split up last year. Her mom also got sick, and for a while she went back to Mexico, where she's from. And now that Mariana's mom is back in Minnesota, her mom is busy running the household, working full-time, and attending English classes. Mariana's days are packed too, and that leaves little time for homework. Like many of her classmates, she helps out with babysitting after school. Her one-year-old nephew, Santiago, fusses in the car seat. He's a little traumatized by me and my microphone. Mariana tries to console him. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. 
When I first met Mariana, she was also working at Taco Bell after babysitting. That means she didn't get a chance to open her school books or do any homework until midnight. But she says she doesn't mind watching her nephew. Do you ever think, gosh, I could be getting so much done with my own life, you know, if I didn't have this responsibility? I do. I really think I I do. But things happen. (laughs) Sometimes the things that we want, we can't have. So, I mean, if my sister needs help, I'll be there to help her and support her. I'd just rather, like, choose my family. Mariana says she's now on track to get her diploma in June. She names two people who she wants to cross that stage for. First is her mom, and second is a woman who's become Mariana's biggest supporter at the school, her student advocate, Rosa Flores. When I graduate, my thank you will be all to her because honestly, like, if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would be able to graduate. My mom and my dad, you could say they were really not in my life. And it's just like knowing that you have like one person caring for you in the school and out of school, it helps you a lot. Providing support for students is so important. And when kids enter the ninth grade, it's everything. That's right. It's why one school I visited focuses so much of its intervention resources on that grade. I'll tell you more when we return. We were talking about how critical ninth grade and the transition to high school can be. When it comes to graduation requirements, it's important because it's when course credits start going on your transcript. But that's not necessarily top of mind for a typical ninth grader. When you're 14, you're dealing with hormones. You're trying to figure out who your friends are. You have bigger responsibilities and less supervision. That's right. And the ninth grade is exactly where I found the people at Patrick Henry High School in North Minneapolis putting their efforts. Henry is very racially and ethnically diverse, even more so than Kennedy. And like Kennedy, they're having some success with their efforts to keep students on track to graduate. Sounds chaotic. What's going on here? Yeah, Laura, I know it sounds kind of like a fire drill, but this is a classroom where 16 mostly spunky ninth graders are moving their desks into small circles for the day's lesson. These students are just a few months into the first and maybe most important year of high school. Research from the University of Chicago found that schools can improve graduation rates by monitoring ninth graders and intervening at the first sign of problems. In 2014, Minneapolis Public Schools started a pilot called PrEP, which is based on that research. Students invited to join the program include kids whose middle school attendance, grades, discipline records, and reading scores raised red flags. Ninth graders like McCary Logan seem to really like the freewheeling small group discussion format. Logan, who's African-American, says she just didn't really pay attention to her teachers in middle school. She says it's helpful to be able to talk through assignments with her classmates. Yeah, because they probably going through the same thing I'm going through, and we probably can help each other out on what we need. Logan's teacher, Rosa Costain, says prep students get extra help with their schoolwork. Yet one of the main goals of the program isn't just to improve students' grades, but to teach them social skills that will help them navigate high school and life. Costain says PrEP teaches students to be advocates for themselves. If you don't yet know how to advocate for yourself or build relationships or speak up or ask for help or push yourself, if no one's ever taught you that, then how can we expect you to know how to do that? It's too early to tell if PrEP is working to improve graduation rates. However, Costain says teachers have told her they've noticed students who've participated in PrEP seem to be more attentive and engaged in class. The school's total graduation rate has steadily increased over the last several years and is now 87 percent. That's higher than the state average. The school's principal, Yusuf Abdullah, is in his first year. He's 39, African-American, and he makes a point to say goodnight to students after school. Have a good night. 
Till next time. The majority of the students streaming past the principal are African American. Despite some significant progress, the graduation rates for Henry's black students still lag behind those of their classmates. Henry is located in a part of the city which contains some of the poorest and most violent neighborhoods in the state. The residents of those neighborhoods are mostly African American. Last October, a student brought a gun to the school. Abdullah says too many black students see this dysfunctional world as normal. That reinforces um, that negative belief of who they are. It reinforces that um, they're not going to amount to anything. So as teachers, as educators, as leaders, um, we just have to combat that. There's only so much teachers, educators, or even early intervention programs can do. Abdullah says African-American students need positive black role models to show students graduation is not only possible, but that it's a crucial milestone. Last November, members of the group 100 Black Men Strong came to the school to have breakfast with around 200 African-American male students. Abdullah says the event was a hit with the students and the mentors, and he'd like to see the men in the school every day. But Abdullah knows it's not realistic to expect volunteers to spend that much time in the school's halls and classrooms. So Henry and Kennedy High Schools have managed to boost their graduation rates over the past several years, even surpassing the state average. And what they're doing isn't all that unique. We've been told that there are hundreds of programs in Minnesota devoted to closing the academic achievement gap. So if these efforts are working, why aren't our state's graduation rates going up in the national rankings? Well, across the state, Minnesota is seeing its graduation rates rise, especially for minority students. But the problem is, so is the rest of the country. So we're still at the bottom compared to other states. Minnesota is behind the pace of national progress when it comes to graduation. State officials say they realize they need to work faster and more urgently if they want to meet their own goal of a 90% graduation rate by 2020. Right now, Minnesota is not on track to hit that. So the question is, how does the state change its course? Remember that student advocate from Kennedy High School I was telling you about? Something's wrong with your pants. Something's wrong with your pants. Oh yeah, that guy. Well, Raheem Simmons was hired when Kennedy's principal decided to create a brand new position. Again, Kennedy calls them student advocates. But at the end of the day, they're student support staff. And when we actually tracked this stuff, we found something pretty stunning for a progressive state that puts a premium on education. Minnesota is dead last in the nation in the portion of education dollars its schools spend on student support. See, the U.S. Census Bureau keeps track of how much schools devote to pupil support as part of their total education spending. These are services like guidance counseling, attendance tracking, social work, you know, the support that students could get outside the classroom. And this is the work that could go a long way in finding and helping the kids who are at risk of not graduating. And Minnesota spending in this category has gone down since the early 2000s, even as national spending kept going up. All this was happening at a time when Minnesota was becoming more diverse. It was also happening at a time when our state was making its graduation requirements more rigorous. At the time, Tim Pawlenty was governor. He promised no new taxes. And he helped slow the growth for state education funding while trying to balance the state budget. Pawlenty also made clear his distaste for excessive spending outside the classroom. Check out his re-election campaign ad from 2006. Our kids deserve the best education. So let's increase funding for our schools. But let's also hold them accountable for better results. Let's put at least 70% of the money here in the classroom. Not here on more bureaucracy. Here on kids. Hi. 
schools were getting squeezed in the 2000s. There were recessions, local school levy measures failed, and costs were going up for things like teacher salaries. And that forced individual schools and districts to make tough decisions. Education Commissioner Brenda Caselius was an administrator with Minneapolis Public Schools back then. This is how she remembers it. What happened was you had to pay your bills, and then you, when you're paying your bills, you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to save everything first that protects the classroom and protects class size. Every single thing that wasn't the core classroom was getting cut. If we don't think that that impacted our graduation rates, well, then we're fooling ourselves. Still, when we mentioned that Minnesota came in last in support spending to some people who advocate for this stuff, they were surprised. Well, first of all, I am shocked. Walter Roberts is a professor of school counseling at Minnesota State University, Mankato. It speaks to me of perhaps this is a missing link in terms of helping to close achievement gaps. He says in the 70s and 80s, a lot of other states began requiring schools to hire counselors. Minnesota has not. And our state has one of the worst student-to-counselor ratios in the country, particularly in elementary schools. It would take about $75 million a year to get spending on counselors and other student support, where it was when the rate peaked back in 2002. Now, maybe you could fault former Republican Governor Tim Pawlenty for characterizing student support as waste. Here, in the classroom. Not here, on more bureaucracy. But the lack of student support hasn't changed much under our current governor, a Democrat. Hi, how are you? Very nice to meet you, sir. At a North Mankato middle school last month, guidance counselors, nurses, and social workers welcomed Governor Mark Dayton with a standing ovation. Hi, everybody. All right. They made their case for funding that would allow schools like theirs to hire additional support staff. Dayton said he was moved by the stories they told him about students with problems, students who are homeless. You, know, you say homeless youth, these are children, adolescents, where are they? It wasn't the first time Dayton appeared sympathetic to the school counselor shortage in Minnesota. He even brought it up in his State of the State address a couple of years ago. But he never backed it up with money in his budget proposal to hire more counselors. The graduation problem in general has taken a backseat to Dayton's signature focus on early childhood education, which is also aimed at closing the achievement gap. He says investing early in children's lives will help them get their diplomas down the road. After his meeting at the North Mankato School, the governor told us he'd take a look at finding more money that could help pay for student support staff. After all, Minnesota has a $900 million budget surplus this year. But he didn't commit to anything, and he's stuck to a point. He said he wants to increase funding to schools and give them latitude to spend it how they see fit. It's known as local control. That's where, you know, again, I think these decisions are best made in terms of the resources that are available. So my view has been if you provide the resources, provide more resources, that gives the school boards the ability to decide what are their priorities. Over the years, there have been proposals at the state capitol to help schools hire more support staff. But they've been unpopular. They've faced opposition from some local school leaders who prefer to get their funding with no strings attached. The idea is they know their students' needs best. Walter Roberts, the Mankato professor, says now it's time for the legislature to get serious about providing support for Minnesota students. If we don't start to address this now when we have a budget surplus, my concern is we're never going to address it. That if indeed the facts say that we're last in terms of funding for student services, that, that it's never going to change. When are we ever going to do it? Because the excuse is always we don't have the money. We don't have the money. Well, now we do. 
The question is, how committed, really, are we to fixing Minnesota's graduation problem? And are we satisfied with the outcomes we have? Many experts put it this way. Our population is aging. We need workers. Students of color are the fastest-growing segment of our future workforce, and yet they have the lowest graduation rates. People who don't have diplomas generally earn a lot less than people who do, and they're more likely to be unemployed. They warn that if we don't fix this, we're in trouble. Not to mention, we're giving people like Xavier Simmons the freedom to fail. I was the type of kid that'll go in the classroom and turn my desk around. When he dropped out sophomore year, Xavier didn't know how that decision would affect the rest of his life. And really, how many 15-year-olds have that kind of foresight? At that time, school, I didn't think of it as a big deal. I didn't think of it as, you know, where do I want to be in life? You know, by the time I'm 35, I want to own my own company. I can't just do that without an education, without a diploma. More than a decade after he quit school, Xavier is in class again. He's trying to get what's known as an adult diploma. Xavier doesn't blame anyone else but himself for making what he now knows was the wrong decision. And there are many more students of color, like Xavier, who don't realize that their dreams and aspirations will be a lot harder to achieve without a diploma. Or students like Shaniqua Barker, who didn't realize how far off track she was from graduating until it was too late. The question policymakers have to ask is, can Minnesota afford to let these students and the thousands like them keep falling into the graduation gap? Covering education, I'm Laura Ewan. And I'm Brant Williams, Minnesota Public Radio News. You can find a link to this Minnesota Public Radio story and read more about the graduation gap at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you'll find more podcasts about issues in higher ed and K-12 education, and you can browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. Also, we'd like to hear what you thought of this podcast and whether or not you'll share it with friends and colleagues. Does it change any of your thinking about equity in public education? Let us know at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Click on the About page and scroll down to Share Your Impact Story. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from Spencer Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and Lumina Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>